Well, good morning. My name is Renee. I'm one of the pastors here at Twin Lakes Church. It is really great to see you, whether you're joining us live in the auditorium or there's a lot of people joining us live on Facebook Live, too. People watching over in the venue service in Munsky Hall. It is great to have you guys uh, with us. I want to talk about one particular subject today and really one particular word. Here it is, the word context. Context is the key to understanding Well, really, anything, especially things that you have a tough time understanding. Let me just give you one example. Look at this paragraph I'm going to put on the screen here. Now, see if this makes any sense to you, and if you can figure it out, just keep it quiet for now. Let me read it to you. A beach, let me just read it to you out loud. A beach is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run Then walk. You may have to try several times, but it's easy to learn. Even kids can enjoy it. Birds rarely get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. When I first read this with no context, that was a head-scratcher to me. It's like, this makes no sense to me. Well, let me just give you one word of context to frame this. And the word is kites. And now let's read it again to see if it makes more sense to you. A beach is a better place than the street because you need not lots of room. At first, it's better to run than walk. You may have to try several times, but it's easy to learn. Even kids can enjoy it. Birds rarely get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Now, every single word makes absolutely total sense. In fact, it's impossible now to read this without seeing what seems to be its obvious meaning, right? That is the power of one word, of context. And what I want to do this morning is I want to show you how the exact same thing can happen with a paragraph in the Bible. There's there's a very famous paragraph, one of the most famous paragraphs in all of Scripture that you might have heard, especially if you grew up in church, many, many times, maybe hundreds of times, but maybe you've never understood it. Yet one word I'm going to give you completely is going to change the way you see this paragraph in the Bible. Grab your message notes, light in the darkness. The journey to the cross and the gospel of Mark is our Lent series for the 40 days leading up to Easter. Today, the meal. You know, you might have heard the words, the last supper. Or the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, the Eucharist. Those are all different words that churches use to refer to the exact same thing. And it all started in our text today, Mark chapter 14, where it says, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Now, maybe you've been thinking to yourself for years, honestly, what in the world does that mean? This To, to some of you, this is like that paragraph about kites, only without the key word kites to unlock its meaning. Well, I've got really great news for you. The Bible writers give us 
the kind of the magical one word of context that is going to completely unlock the meaning of every single word here. And I'm excited about this this morning because maybe for years, communion, the Lord's table, the Eucharist hasn't really touched you deep down like maybe it used to touch you. Maybe it's never really touched you. It just seemed like a dry ritual. When we take communion in just a few minutes, if you stick with me here, you are going to see it and understand it and have a deeply felt gratitude and new sense of wonder for God's amazing love for you, all because of one word of context that is going to frame this paragraph. Now, I'm not going to tell you what this one word of context is at first because I want to see if you can figure it out. We're going to, this is verse 22 of Mark 14. We're going to rewind about 10 verses to get the context for what's happening here, starting in the verses right before this in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, that's another word for Passover or what Jewish people today call the Seder, when it was customary to sacrifice, excuse me, the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And so he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and this is the city of Jerusalem, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, found things just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. Did you notice a word Mark repeats there a lot? What word? It's almost humorous how many times Mark goes, Passover, Passover, uh, people, people, people. It was the Passover. Four times in Mark, 14 times total in the Gospels, we're told this was the Passover. Interestingly, you know who the, the Gospel writer is? Who mentions it the most? The only book of the Bible written by a Gentile, uh, Luke, wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And he's writing his Gospel for Gentiles. And six times in his Gospel, he says, Gentiles, that's all non Jewish people. You got to realize this meal was at the Passover. So I'm pretty sure the one word context to frame those verses at communion is the word Passover. Now, here's a really big problem. Many Christians today don't even know what Passover means. And here's why. The Jewish roots of our faith have been buried over the years. In fact, this this may shock some of you here today, but did you realize Jesus would not have called himself Christian? Does that shock you? But the very word Christian wasn't even invented until about 20 years later. In his earthly lifetime, Jesus would have called himself Jewish. He lived in a Jewish context. He was a Jewish man. Unfortunately, over the centuries, Jesus has been whitewashed into like a Swedish hippie. And this is a bad thing. (laughs) Nothing against the Swedes. We've even made the Lord's Supper into a bunch of Italians having brunch. And the problem with this is... That means that communion has been blanched of color and of meaning. Now, it wasn't always like this. For centuries, the very first Christians 
emphasize the connection between Passover and communion. In fact, in Jerusalem, the Archbishop of Jerusalem was the most important Christian leader in the world at the time, and the first Archbishop of Jerusalem was Jewish. In fact, the first 15 Archbishops of Jerusalem were all Jewish men. And they taught always celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection on Passover to preserve our Jewish roots. And that ended only when Constantine, the Roman emperor in 325, came in and said, actually, never celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection on Passover, effectively erasing two centuries of our Jewish roots. And so what I want to do this morning is to get back a lot more Jewish Jesus and a little less Roman Constantine and reestablish what communion meant to the first Christians. And this is the perfect year to do it because guess what? This year, Passover, the Seder, happens again on the exact same weekend as Good Friday and Easter. So it is a great time to rediscover this connection. And here's how I want to do this. I want to get our imaginations into hyperdrive mode today. What was Passover like in Jesus' time? Since the gospel writers seem to be insisting that we picture Passover to really understand this. So page two, the Seder, the Passover, was a little different then than it is now I could spend hours on this, but the main outline is the same. It was centered on four verbs in this verse, Exodus 6, starting at verse 6, where God says this to the Israelites, and this happened 1,400 years before Jesus. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, and I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And the four verbs there, I'll bring you out, free you, redeem you, take you, those were the outline of the Seder. Here's what happened. Four times during the Seder meal, the host would raise his glass and lead the family gathered there for the Seder in kind of a toast for these four things God did in their history to free the Israelites. And so tonight, or this morning rather, I want you to imagine you are there with Jesus at this Seder meal, this Passover meal. Just picture it. You are sitting at that Seder table as Jesus raises the first toast, the cup of sanctification. Now, sanctification is one of those big words that religious people use, but it just means set apart. God set apart the Israelites for rescue. That was step one. And God sets apart the Seder. He makes it a special annual meal. And in a broader sense, for anybody who turns to the Lord, God has set me apart. God has chosen me. He heard your cry your desperate cry. He set you apart for something great. So this kind of sets the stage. And then right after this cup, picture it, Jesus picks up the bitter herbs. Now in Jesus' time, this was usually a bitter lettuce, like romaine lettuce. In the modern Seder, this has been common from about 1200 AD on, it might be horseradish, 
or beets, something like that. But in Jesus' day, it was a bitter kind of a lettuce. And following his lead, you and all the other disciples now pick up this bitter herb in front of you, and you all taste it together. Why? What's it supposed to symbolize? The bitterness of slavery. And we're not done with the bitter herbs. Then another bitter herb, like maybe parsley, is dipped in salt water. And you all taste that together. Why? To remind you of the taste of tears. To remind you that life still has bitterness. Even though you're chosen by God, life is not all unicorns and rainbows, right? In this world, you will have trouble, as Jesus told his disciples at this meal. Even if you're God's chosen. This is really important. The bitter times, in fact, are often the stage for God to do great things, like historically great things. So if you're tasting the tears in your life right now, don't give up. The bitter herbs are not the meal. They're just sort of the appetizer. The wonderful main course is ahead. So the bitter herbs have been eaten. The suspense is building. Appetites are sharpening. Can you, can you imagine that? The meal smells great. <clears throat> I mean, imagine a great barbecue, right? There's lamb being roasted. As you look over, the juices are dripping. The lamb is almost ready. But there's one more thing that has to be done before the meal is served. The youngest at the table, in this case, it would probably be the disciple John, asks the famous Seder question. And I want you to imagine that you are this person who asks this question. You are facing Jesus at the Seder, and you ask this question. So let's all say the question in yellow out loud together. Why is this night different from all other nights? And Jesus pauses and looks at you and says, oh, you have no idea. But he starts the answer the traditional way with the story of Passover. Now, I was thinking, how would Jesus have told the Passover story? I don't know exactly, but if you look at the parables, he tells lots of stories. And if you look at the parables, he's, he's never a long-winded storyteller. He's always very brief, very concise. So I imagine that he might have done kind of a two-minute version as he says, well, let's go all the way back to Moses, 1,400 years before this happens. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt, but the worst thing the Egyptians did to them was not slavery. The worst was this. Pharaoh orders every male Hebrew baby shall be drowned in the Nile River. And God hears the cries of the Israelites, and he calls Moses to go to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Pharaoh says no. So God sends plagues on the Egyptians with increasing intensity as Pharaoh keeps refusing. In fact, in poetic justice, the Nile turns red, but Pharaoh keeps refusing. And so the Nile becomes the source of more plague. Beasts crawl out. It gets worse and worse. Still, Pharaoh says no. And finally, God says, so be it. As you killed those Hebrew children, so shall there be a plague of death against the firstborn of every house in Egypt from the angel of death. And no one in the land is exempt from this. Not Israelite, not Egyptian, but a way out is provided for anybody who would receive it. If families get together and have 
Well, you could call it a Last Supper together. And they're standing packed, ready to walk out of the country with faith in God's deliverance, even though they can't see it right now. And for their Last Supper in Egypt, they slay an unblemished, spotless lamb for their meal. And then they dab the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house, the top, the sides. And I imagine Jesus saying at this point, remember that detail, boys, the top and the sides. And then when the angel of death sees the blood of the lamb, it will pass over the house. That's why it's called the Passover. I want to show you something, something I just discovered this week. In the Hebrew scriptures, when it uses the word Passover, it's the Hebrew verb pasach, from which the Hebrew noun for Passover comes. There's actually another more common Hebrew word for Passover that's not used here. This word is linguistically close to an Egyptian word. And the Egyptian word means to cover with wings, like when a mother bird covers its babies to protect them from harm. And as Jesus tells this story and gets to this word, I'm thinking he starts to tear up as he remembers what he said just a couple days before, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. National Geographic uh, had a true story about a fire back in Yellowstone National Park And when rangers came back into the park after the fire, they found the charred remains of a bird. And as one of the rangers moved its body aside with his boot, from underneath its wings scurried tiny baby chicks, alive and peeping. That mother hen gave her life to protect her little ones from the fire. (laughs) Even that little creature had sacrificial love. And Jesus knows, as he tells the story, that is exactly what he is about to do. At his crucifixion, he's going to be covering you and me with his wings. But you don't really understand that yet as one of the disciples at this Seder. All you know is Jesus sure seems to be getting a lot more emotional as he raises the second of the four Seder cups, the cup of emancipation, based on the second verb of Exodus 6, 6, I will free you. God freed the Israelites, and the point for you and me today is God liberates me too. This is why Jesus came to set us free from sin. Now, when we say that, what does that look like? When you turn to God, does God just free you instantly, 100% from every problem? Well, think of it this way. When the Israelites were slaves, did God just beam them up and over into the promised land instantly? No. He does set them free miraculously. They could never have done it on their own. And then they have to pack up, hit the road, walk the steps, out of slavery, following the Lord one step at a time in the presence of God as they enter the promised land, right? And the same exact thing is true when God liberates you and me. We're set free. I could never escape slavery to sin on my own. And then I need to walk the steps into freedom as God continues to do miracles in the presence of God. 
Real life example. In a couple of weeks, Clay and Renee Cross are going to be here to speak at our marriage conference. Clay is a great friend of mine. He's a four-time Dove Award-winning gospel singer. But his marriage to his wife, Renee, almost collapsed years ago when he confessed to her a sex addiction manifested in a porn addiction. And personally, I feel so sorry for Renee because she already had such a tough life going through life with a boy's name, and then now this. But, um, (laughs) poor thing. But uh, Clay confesses to her this. It's rough for a while, but they get counseling. It all happened about two decades ago. They're great now, but I want you to listen to what they say in this interview about how God set them free. Watch this. It's work. It's an ongoing thing. People ask us all the time, so when did that button get switched off for you, Clay? And, you know, so when When did you... When were you set free? Set free and overcome this. Well, in a way, I was set free. In a way, God showed me, look, you struggle with this. Here's the path. Here's how to walk in this and stay closer to me and guard yourself. Um, So that was freedom. Mm -hmm. But it's not freedom in saying... I'm done now. It's like, I begin now. Mm -hmm. I begin now. Mm -hmm. All those years I was doing nothing and falling. With your strength, Lord, I'm going to do these things. Got to be intentional. Got to really be serious about them. And again, moving back to that, that mindset of, man, this is what God had to use and allowed in our lives to bring us to where we are today. Mm -hmm. And if that's got to be it to keep us on our knees and keep us focused on him and keep us seeking him and telling others, I have to just swallow my pride and say, that's it, you know? Mm -hmm. Again, they're going to be at our marriage seminar here in a couple of weeks. I know you're going to love these guys. You can sign up online, and there's also a table in the lobby today. But did you hear what they said? Did he liberate me? Absolutely. God set me free, and then I had to work the steps. God sets you free, and then you keep walking with God all the way into the promised land. Now, we finally get to the meal. And you're thinking, at that Seder table, at last I am starving. And the lamb is served and the veggies and Jesus breaks bread as the host and hands it out. And so that you can imagine it accurately, this is not like fluffy Gale's bread. This is unleavened, flat bread to remember how the Israelites were in such a hurry to leave Egypt, they didn't have time even to put leaven or yeast in the dough for it to rise. But watch this. By the time of Jesus, the rabbis at the time said the unleavened bread had come to signify something else, the spotless lamb, the lamb without blemish sacrificed at Passover. The the leaven came to represent sin, so unleavened bread is sinless, the spotless lamb. So while today the sacrificial lamb is represented at the Seder meal by a lamb bone, on the table in Jesus' day, they, they were sacrificing the lamb and they were eating the lamb and, and it was symbolically represented at the table by the bread. And when he breaks the bread, this is where Jesus starts to alter the ancient Seder script. Verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And the disciples are like, what now? 
you're thinking, Jesus, what the script is, what you're supposed to say is, take and eat. This is the unblemished lamb, the Passover lamb. But Jesus is saying something is happening tonight at this table that's going to make history like that night we're remembering so long ago. And their heads are kind of like spinning. And now Jesus starts picking up the pace. It's almost like he has some place he needs to be. And he raises another toast. Number three, the cup of redemption. And some sources say the red wine for this cup was mixed with warm water in those days. To make the symbolism clear, this was representative of the the redemption bought by the blood of the Passover lamb. Now, we don't use the word redemption a lot these days, but as we saw a couple of weeks ago, it means to pay a price to liberate something. And the point is a price was paid for me. What price? Well, the Passover lamb was the price paid for the ancient Israelites, but what price was paid for you and me? Watch what happens next. Then Jesus took the cup. And then is an important word here. We know it was the third cup, the cup of redemption, because they ate. And then he took the cup. So this had to be the cup of redemption, which came after the meal. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank from it. And I imagine him saying very slowly and very clearly so they will always remember this moment. This is my blood. Now stop there for just a second. His blood. You and the other disciples are looking at each other going, but this symbolizes the Passover lamb's blood. But a few hours later, you remember how At the Passover, God told them to take the blood of the Passover lamb and put it on the doorpost. And let's just practice that right now. I'm going to put an imaginary doorpost on the screen. I want everybody to hold up your right hand. Hold up your right hand. Now, pretend that you are daubing the top and the sides of the imaginary doorframe with that blood. Do it again. Top and the sides. Top and the sides. What shape are you making with your hands? The sign of the cross. Imagine you are one of those disciples. And less than 24 hours after this Seder, you see Jesus crucified on a cross of wood and you start getting the goosebumps as you remember how he said, This is my blood. And then he says, of the covenant. And now the surprises are coming, one right after another, because a covenant is like an agreement. The covenant was the law, the Torah that Moses received from God. Well, the prophet Jeremiah in the Hebrew scriptures says that when Messiah comes, there will be a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. It will not be like that one? Well, how will it be different? I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. 
well, how's he going to forgive our wickedness? Like for all time, it's implying, remember their sins no more. Because we have to bring sacrifices every year. Slowly you start to see that the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus, was sacrificed on Passover to put an end to the need for any more sacrifice so people could be forgiven forever. No more sacrifice needed. And then more surprises, one right after another, because Jesus leaves a part of the Seder undone. Usually there's a fourth cup at the end of the Seder meal, the cup of completion, where God says to the Israelites in Exodus 6, I will take you as my own. We remember God saying, I'm not going to free you and leave you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take you all the way into the promised land. The point is that God leads me home. He won't abandon me. And the host is supposed to close the meal by raising this toast, but Jesus refuses. He says, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In those days, this phraseology was a way to make a vow. I vow I will not eat or drink again until I do whatever you are vowing to do. It was the most solemn vow you could make. Well, Jesus here is making a vow promise. He's saying, I vow to you, I am going to bring you into my kingdom. I am going to bring you to the feast of the king on that day that God renews heaven and earth, on that day that people come from the east and the west to join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others at the feast. He says, and on that day, that's the day we complete the Seder. That's the day we raise the fourth cup together, the cup of completion. And I don't know about you, but I am so taking Jesus' word on this. Flat out, I believe his promise. I think he has credibility. (laughs) And I am looking forward to the moment. On that day, I raise my glass and there's Jesus lifting a toast. And there's mom. (laughs) And there's dad. Good to see you, dad. Good to see you. And there's people from the Bible. There's King David. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's Mary. I want to ask her, was it hard not to brag on your son all the time, you know? There's Adam. I want to go, what were you thinking? What? Seriously. (laughs) And we all raise our glasses, and we praise the Lamb of God who is sitting at the head of the table. I asked you to imagine you're at this Seder. Well, you'll be at this Seder. Because we'll all raise the cup of completion together, so says Jesus. Now, at this point in the Seder, there's a closing hymn. It says, when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And that's the end of their Seder. And what happens next is one of my favorite scenes in the whole Bible. It is riveting. It's dramatic. It'll change your prayer life. And we'll get to it next week. For now... When we take communion in a moment, remember the one word, context, key, Passover. And how it adds back the color. 
because the bread we're about to take is the unleavened bread of a Passover meal, representing the unblemished lamb, Jesus. And the cup we take originated as the third cup of the Seder, the cup of redemption. I don't know about you, but at times I can hear voices saying, who do you think you are, Renee? You are such a sinner. Sometimes specific sins from my past pop into mind. But in those times, if I remember this, Jesus' whisper can drown out those voices as he says, remember, I've covered you by my blood. You're safe under my wings, and I've given you a new covenant I will forgive Renee's wickedness, and I will remember his sin no more. And sometimes I just weep with gratitude. And in a couple of minutes, we're going to take communion, and I hope you hear his whisper to you, too. But as we set this up, very quickly, two overlooked aspects of the Last Supper, because we miss the context that it was a Seder meal. First, it's about family, right? The Jewish people celebrate the Passover by eating with their families. They might have a lot of differences, but they have this common history. Same with all of us here today. Somebody said, what binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've been saved by Jesus Christ. I love this. They're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. You may feel a little like a misfit here, but when we take the bread and the cup together, you're with family. Even if the person who hands... The elements to you doesn't look like you and doesn't talk like you and didn't vote like you or family. You know, imagine you're in the Sinai Desert the year after that first Passover and you see this river of humanity headed north and suddenly they stop to eat what looks like a special meal and you say, what's happening here? They would have said something like this. Well, this meal reminds me I was a slave. I took shelter under the blood of the lamb I escaped my captivity, and now God lives in our midst, and we're following him to the promised land. And do you see, that's exactly what Christians say at communion. This is where we find our unity. And second, remembering the context reminds me, it's about food, and this is super important. Jesus says, take and eat. What am I saying? You know, you could have a Seder meal cooked to perfection, piled in front of you, smelling delicious, and you could still starve to death. Because to be nourished by a meal, you have to eat it. And to receive life from Jesus, you need to receive it personally, just like food. You see, but I don't totally understand all of this. You don't have to understand food I can't eat this donut until I understand it. You just receive it. (laughs) Same with Jesus. You can just say, Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I want to receive you into my life. And great things happen from there. To receive life from food, I must personally receive it, right? To be nourished. 
Same with the bread of life, Jesus. And as we get ready to take communion, I just want to give you a chance to do that right now. Would you bow in prayer with me? With our heads bowed, I hope you've heard today that you are part of a plan that God set into motion thousands of years ago. It's not just about something that happened then. You are part of the story this morning, part of the poetry covered by his wings. In your heart right now, would you just say, Lord, I am a sinner. But thank you for your mercy, the new covenant. And some of you may just want to settle the issue for the first time and just become a Jesus follower and receive him. You've been thinking about it. So now can you say, I receive you into my life like food as my Lord and as my Savior. I don't understand it all. Help me to understand it more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.